0: I'm Chris Farrell from the All Things Good and Nerdy podcast, a wacky weekend morning show, part of the Gunna Geek Network, just like the show you're checking out right now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other awesome geeky shows over at GunnaGeekNetwork.com. Hello, and thank you for joining us for another episode of the Intellectual Podcast. If you're new to the show, welcome. I'm your host, David S. Dawson. I'm a filmmaker in San Diego, California, and I started The Intellectual eight seasons ago because I love exploring the stories of how people who pursue creative endeavors get to where they are. The conversations in each episode are not interviews. We strive for a more casual chat with our guests, and we let the natural flow of conversation run its course as much as we can. This often leads us into surprising territory, not just for you and for me, but often the things we explore surprise even our guests. We often follow up our conversations with our guests on the Clubhouse app, So please join us on Clubhouse. You can visit our club page by visiting us online at intellectualchats.club. And if you need an invite to the app, be sure to check out our Instagram and Twitter accounts at The Intellectual regularly, as we post links to our discussions there with invite codes. If you enjoy this conversation, I hope that you'll subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast player. We're easily found if you search The Intellectual Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Now, let's get on with this week's chat with another amazing creative.
1: Talk hard and enjoy the mindgasm.
0: The Intellectual Podcast
2: starts now. Hello, hello, intellectual listeners. We are here today with Lisa Lindo, a woman of many hats. How are you doing today, Lisa? I am trying on all my
1: hats, trying to figure which one I'm going to wear today, but I think today... I am a podcast guest.
2: You are a podcast guest today, um, but among the many other hats that you wear, let's see. There's a uh, producer, actor, NFT creator, manager. Uh, you can help me out with this list because I feel like it's pretty extensive. <laughs>
1: okay, so the actor one is kind of funny. I am so not an actor, but a film that I was helping produce and manage a location for once I walked by in the background and that became my first IMDb credit. And so when you look me up, it appears that I am actually an actress. Although, (laughs) truth be told, um, uh, when Bjornem and Murray did The Real World, after the Mm -hmm. very first Real World, before there were any um, spinoffs ever or Kardashians or any of that. There had only been the Loud family, and then there was the first real world on MTV. They did a show on NBC called Friends and Lovers, and my ex-husband and I were one of the five couples on that series. So, but I'm not an actress. I do not pretend. I am classically trained at UCLA, but I w- there are so many great people that are out there that do it for a profession. I would never presume.
0: <laughs> oh,
1: all right. Oh, but you want the other ones? Okay, so yeah. I've. Um, I've uh, I theatrically booked uh, films in theaters, uh, 94 theaters, 124 theaters. So I've actually helped films get into theaters in the before times. Um, a couple of really important docs and a romantic comedy that was then picked up by Showtime. One of them was uh, Rooted in Peace, the Greg Reitman film where he interviews Deepak Chopra and Donovan and David Lynch and Pete Seeger and, and Desmond Tutu and... The Archbishop and all these amazing people and uh, that was a really important piece uh, that we went out with about being peaceful on the International Day of Peace and the other doc is to a more perfect union the Edie Windsor story and because of her case that went to the Supreme Court we were able to overturn DOMA and you know which led to making gay marriage legal so I'm very proud of doing that I've, uh, I've ghostwritten autobiographies, I think. But I think the main thing that I do these days, other than having been known as the CEO of Acme Talent and Literary for a decade, um, is that I'm a manager. So I manage companies and I manage intellectual properties and authors, award-winning screenwriters and authors. And uh, I'm the vice president of the Milan International Film Festival. Uh, I own and run a an actual movie theater in the virtual reality space um, and I represent artists and graphic artists um, for their properties uh, to turn them into TV and, and film projects um, and as a result, yes, we have one NFT that dropped and sold for two ETH on OpenSea. And if my information is correct, I believe that CryptoPop, who is the person that's dropping our NFTs, um, is going to be dropping the second one any day uh, on Waka Flocka's new NFT platform, satoshi.art. So that's kind of exciting. We're supposed to be one of their first hundred artists that they're presenting to the world and covering all the gas fees and the minting fees. So, you know, you never know. It's the wild West out there with that stuff. So, but I think that that's happening. So that's super, super, super exciting. So that's the second one. And that was, we animate our NFTs and we add music um, NFTs we could totally get into, but they're really just transmedia plays for existing IPs. And the existing IP in that case was Canacity, which was a collection of um, art from different artists around the world of images of fierce females so the second one has music in it from uh paul riggio whose company um groove guild is w- uh, won a, a Clio um, and been nominated for a bunch of other ones and he's like a synth hip-hop music guy um that did our music for that we're really psyched about that um and then the third one i believe we're going to be doing with burton l um who uh, does all the visuals for uh G- Mu-Tang and Ghostface Killen. And killer priest, whenever he, they were performing live in the before time. So um we're kind of excited about living in the in the Wu-Tang East Coast system, even just a little bit. So that's the third piece we're gonna do. And um so I think that is the long version with lots of stuff missing of all the things that I do. I have produced two award-winning, best-selling audiobooks in the Battle for Forever series that are narrated by Will Wheaton. So I'm kind of you know, a go-to person for a bunch of people who are looking to turn their books into audiobooks as well for autumn. Lisa, I really do. Yeah,
2: <laughs> I think that's it's it. It's crazy. <laughs> like when you, sorry, when you say all of these things that you have done and continue doing in your life, uh, all I can sit here and think is like, how in the hell do you even get started down that road? Which is kind of where I want to start because. You have so many things that you've done and like if anyone, everyone, not that anyone can follow in your footsteps, but where, where did you grow up? How did this all begin? Give us a journey because I think the building blocks to getting where you are uh, for uh, even me, like I'm just like, how, so can we start there? Like, where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? How did you get involved in this business?
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much for asking. I love these origin story questions myself.
0: Yeah, that's people, my favorite part of the podcast
1: yeah when other people answer them i'm all like wow so i think at the end of the day all roads lead to rome right there's a million different paths to working in the entertainment industry specifically but for me i was going to be a lawyer and i was going to ucla i grew up in a lot of places i uh lived in israel i was there for the six-day war i lived on the kibbutz faim i lived i grew up in i was born in la i went to. Uh, to Europe with my mother um, in the Middle East when I was, uh, right after I was born, she was teaching English to people and she was teaching English with this thick Brooklyn accent because my parents are from Brooklyn. So I have a little bit of an accent that I do not have any reason for having. And we lived in France and we lived in Greece and we lived in Italy, but, you know, I was really young, right? So really my memories of being a kid are growing up in Beverly Hills and then in Manhattan Beach on the beach. So that's where I went to junior high school. And that's where I went to high school. And then I went to UCLA and I was going to be a lawyer. My mother was like, How, what kind of lifestyle do you want to have? And I told her and she goes, okay, pretty much doctor or lawyer, make up your mind. So, um, <laughs> so uh, I went to UCLA and there was no like pre-law undergrad thing, right? So I chose a math system science major degree because I was good at math. And I figured, you know, unlike some other degrees, you know, numbers equal numbers, you're going to get an A, like no matter what I would do well, right? You can't like, it's not like someone could judge your writing and not give you a great grade or something. It's just math. Yeah. So I really, really loved that. And then I I did so well, I finished it early. I finished it in like less than three years, but I really liked going to UCLA a lot i was a social chair of my sorority for those years and i kind of really dug it so i thought i have a choice of like you know like going to europe for a year after college like people do before they go to grad or maybe just taking another major and staying where i'm enjoying myself so i took a second major of theater for fun that was my (laughs) year in europe
0: was a theater degree that was your gift to yourself was a theater degree
1: That was my gift to myself. (laughs) And I had never acted in anything and I had never directed anything and I had never costumed anything and I never lit anything and I never built a set. Um, And I learned how to do all of that. I learned how to work a box office. I uh, would drop into any scene that anybody needed for anything, for a directing class, for a student film. I... Was classically trained. I studied Shakespeare. I can hang a light. I can, I can run sound. I I worked on the soap opera at university and designed the logo that I think they still use today. They have a US UCLA soap opera. I think it's still going. I don't know COVID, right? I don't know. Um, but uh, but um, I learned how to you know run three cameras. I learned how to be an ad. I learned you know I really like picked up as much as I could. Again, honestly, never thinking I would use it, right? Just for fun.
2: I I love that you did. You're a woman after my own heart. Like I did that whole path of getting the technical BFA and the acting BFA and then MFA and all of that. So I so appreciate that you studied it just out of the joy of, of knowledge.
1: It really was for fun. And there was this just before I graduated, literally just before I graduated, because I did it the way I did it. I ended up being in a situation where I was going to use every single credit they ask, They let you use before you can't take any more classes at UCLA undergrad. <laughs> There's a max, just so you know. Okay. And um, and so first I had to prove that I could take all of the theater classes and that the electives that I had taken while I was a mass system science major would cross over, but I also had to uh, prove that to the theater department before they would even accept me, so I got it. And, um, it was a thing undergrad at UCLA in 1985 was a thing. It was like a thing. It was a big deal. It was, it was a big deal for undergrad department in the United States to go to. So I was competing against people like their whole lives. This was their dream. Right. And, um, just before I graduated, I was, had to take a class and I had to take a language and the language only allowed me to take the class at a certain time. And I finally got in and I was fitting everything together like a puzzle piece. So you had to take this year of Shakespeare, which I will never regret. It was wonderful. But the professor was a was brilliant and a hard ass. And in order to take his Shakespeare classes this is now the last part of it for the year. You had to take one quarter and then the th- second quarter. Now I'm in the third quarter. Um, you had to take like a section on the side where you would speak with like a professor and there'd be like eight of you in a room like, you know, chopping it up about Shakespeare. And the time that they gave me was the same time as a French class. So I had to go ask for permission to change it from this hard-ass Shakespeare teacher. Hmm. And I get to his class, I get to his office and there's a huge line outside and they're all waiting to ask if they could change their, their section for whatever reason. It's the beginning of a thing. Every other professor just is like signs off, sure, whatever. He makes it a thing. And one by one, each person comes in and he says the same thing to each one because you can hear it. Oh, you want to be an actor? You think you can change your call time when you're an actor? You think you have the right to just change your audition time when you're an actor? You get an appointment, you show up. That's the lesson here, right? And I get to the front of the line and he gives me the whole lecture and I go, well, actually, I think I might be a producer. And he goes, oh, okay. Signs the paper. <laughs> That's it. I'm out. I changed my class. <laughs> Lesson learned, right? Lesson learned Not an actress I'm a producer So um, When I graduated again I was still going to go to law school I got a job I had worked undergrad For law firms as paralegal So I got a job At arguably one of the largest Law firms in the world Scan, NARP, Slate, Neger and Floam I was uh, beginning ped- uh, Litigation paralegal there They were going to pay for law school That would have been amazing However I also had interviewed At Paramount and Paramount had Cleons walking around.
0: Right. <laughs>
1: I think I think Star Trek IV might have been shooting that. And so I actually took both jobs to start with Whitney. I worked nine to five Monday through Friday at Paramount, and six to ten Monday through Friday in the evening at Scadden, and then ten hours on Saturday and ten hours on Sunday. I was working eighty hour week.
2: Oh my goodness! Wow.
1: But right out of UCLA, it wasn't that big You're a deal. You're I mean. a hell go
0: getter. <laughs>
2: right i Uh, go go get her and i went and got him i don't think much has changed lisa like you're always go 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 the
1: thing is is at ucla i was burning the candle at both ends ending the day at 11 o'clock at night was no big deal right working through the weekends doing stuff on the weekends was no big deal right right so why not get paid for it but while i worked at paramount there was a writer's guild strike. And the lawyer that I worked for, I first worked for one, then I worked for two, oversaw all of the licensing cases where there were issues um, for anybody that licensed Paramount product, you know, uh, Brady Buncher, like uh, all of the ridiculous, all the Star Trek, you know, content, all the ridiculous shows in their library. They have a huge library of television content. And one by one, these local stations were going bankrupt because of the writer's guild strike. So because they couldn't have any original content, they couldn't sell commercials, so they couldn't even pay for their, licensed content of old shows. And so I went, we went, our office went from overseeing two cases to overseeing 300. So I left Scadden and I worked at Paramount full time with overtime and I loved every minute of it. And I was even in the Christmas chorus at Paramount, the employee Christmas chorus. And I loved it. I loved being on the lot. I loved Klingons in the commissary. Um, I love the tomato soup in the commissary. Okay. I loved, I, I would take the street that would make me be able to drive straight up to the main gate. So for like 20 blocks, I would see the gate with the Hollywood sign behind it. Like the whole thing. I, I was like, all right, I'm in. And my <laughs> husband at the time um, started out as my boyfriend that became my fiance while I was working at Paramount. It was his dream to be in the entertainment industry. So the last quarter that I was at UCLA, he was producing an independent film that used a lot of student elements. Some people were in school, so they got free access to stuff, but it was really, he put in like a hundred grand, like it was no joke. It was a real independent film. And um he had called me just before I graduated and was like, look, I heard you can cook. <laughs> I called me out of the blue. <laughs> and I was wondering if you would do like, we're looking for an intern for craft service. It was such an arbitrary call. And I'm like, look, dear, I'm casting the lead in something every quarter. So I'm sure I'll have to use up my two credits for that. Uh, but if I do not get cast in something, I will let you know. And of course, the last quarter I got cast in nothing. So I did that <laughs> film and I was an intern for Craft Service and I ended up marrying the producer of the film. So now I'm working at Paramount. We're engaged. Uh, and I heard you can make more off a lot than on. I don't think you guys realize this origin story would be this long. So uh, I heard about a job at Norman, working for Norman Lear and I went to work for Norman Lear and act three at the time was the seventh largest theater chain owner in the United States. They were in London and Nashville and Toronto and New York and LA. They were the largest publisher of publications having to do with the entertainment industry channels, magazine, et cetera. Um, I think ad week was theirs. Um, he had, he, as I said, he had Three theaters, uh, a theater chain. Of course, we were there for Princess Bride and uh, and um, and fried to all the way to Fried Green Tomatoes. And while I was there, we produced the first commercial ever made um, with Ronald Reagan in it. Also, that uh, actually said the word AIDS, where he said it's okay to hug people. It was after he left the office, so I had this like because he's people for the American Way, and it just it was just an amazing time to be there. But while I was there, Act Three went from being this mont this huge massive thing. Norman was like, I think. I'm I want to divest myself of all of this. And he sold it all off and it became Norman Lear, my boss, Marky Pollack, Norman's assistant, and me.
2: So Lisa, real quick, just because within this origin story, I want to make sure that it's very clear. When you uh, got your job at Paramount, was that, did you meet someone through your schooling that allowed you to get your foot in the door? Or was that just, you sent in your resume and they're like, damn, this is stellar. And they hired you. And same with Norman Lear. Did you have... Uh, no, I knew, I knew nobody in the
1: industry. I had never worked in the industry. None of my family were in the industry. I mean, I have a cousin who's an actress who's Ellen Green from Little Shop of Fours, but that is not someone who could get, yeah, no, I knew nobody, but I grew up in LA. Right. So the Paramount job was literally just sending my resume to the, uh, it, well, walking it in to the uh, HR office, the employment office that they had that you could just walk in and find out about open jobs. And legal was my thing, you know, because I'd worked at law firms undergrad because I was going to go to law school. Right. So they sat me down and it was the same question I used to get asked all the time during that time period. Can you work for difficult people? And I'm like, sure. Which I found out later. Big mistake. Big. Huge. But I'm like, all right, yeah, of course I can. So that's how I got the job at Paramount. Um, for Norman Lear, uh, Marquis Pollock, it was the same thing. Um, I was told, can you work for difficult people? There was absolutely nothing difficult about working for Marquis Pollock. However, um, he had worked through some assistance and there were huge piles of a backlog of stuff not filed. And at that time, he used to say things like file this under A. Like he would file things under Just a letter of A through Z, which is not a way to be able to find anything. So I created a filing system and organized us. And I was known for my filing system at Paramount. So blah, blah, blah. That's like the thing that I did. Uh, So yeah, knew nobody. You don't need to know anybody to break into the business. You don't need to know anybody. You just need to start submitting your resume to HR departments and interviewing well. So um, while I worked for Norman Lear, it was an amazing time, um, but as they, as everyone was like thrown to the wind that worked there other than me, right, um, one of the people that worked there, Andy Cohen, who's now a really great literary manager out in the world and producer, said, I gave your resume to triad. You'll thank me later. Like, I don't even know how you got a copy of my resume, right? <laughs> and I'm like, okay. And for me at that point, agents were at the bottom of the food chain, like, you really didn't talk to agents. Like, ew. Like, seriously, that was my thought process. So... Um, I was not really interested and at Triad, like at most agencies, um, you know, at the time they had arguably one of the biggest music departments, which was later the whole thing was bought by William Morris. um, I worked for the head of uh, TV packaging, who was also a partner at Triad, Rob Lee, and uh, they had one of the biggest packaging departments before packaging was a dirty word. Um, And, uh, you know, movies of the week, movies of the week, movies of the week, with all the big, you know, everybody, right? Everybody. Everybody huge. So... Um, and, uh, I interviewed there and, you know, most kids are coming to the mailroom, right? So this guy didn't want anybody from the mailroom. He wanted someone with experience who could deal with a tremendous amount of traffic coming through, who knew how to deal with celebrities, who knew how to read and do coverage, who could open up his Malibu home, fill it with furniture and throw parties, who could get his Hollywood home ready for events and, and, you know, all of the above, right? so i'm like all right but i'm not really interested in this job so i made him like bid against himself for a while which became an mo for me um until it was more money than i was making for norman i was like all right i'll come not a great idea the assistance and the ecosystem of an agency where everybody's vying to become an agent like my whole thing was i don't want to be an agent but i'll do the job for money right Mm -hmm. um they did not like that at all They were really not nice to me. I had skipped the mailroom. I had skipped being an outside assistant. And now I'm an inside assistant, running calls, making friends with all the long form television producers and their assistants and their development people. And I'm starting a networking group because the people that worked there weren't that nice. So I started getting the attention of the trades for a dinner party that I had every month with the development people that I met over the phone that were really cool. And the people that I worked with at Paramount and the people that I had worked with That Norman Lear's and it was called Fox had just been created, and it was called the fourth network, and so we called ourselves the fifth network. Um, I actually had a friend that came up with the top ten list of names we should name the group. It was like, let's put the cough back in Tartar Cough Club. Like I don't know, it was just it was very very silly (laughs) names. It was very very silly names, and then we but we ended up with the fifth network and. CNN came and covered us a bunch of times. And we, like I said, we are written up on like front page of the variety that, you know, I was seen as a leader amongst my peers and I was throwing these sit down dinners every month. You had to say, uh, if you said yes and you didn't come, you weren't invited back. And our credo was you had to be nice. You had to believe in responsible programming and making a difference in the entertainment industry, but you had to be nice. And as a result, um, I'm responsible for a bunch of marriages and, uh, teenage children now and, uh, or older and a lot of mergers of companies. Cause you know, when you're in a room full of great people, maybe you want to work with them. So we had more than like 600 members and I'd rotate the list and we had a sit down dinner for between 80, 80, a hundred people every month. Um, and in that time period during those years that I ran that thing, that ent- entity, the fifth network, which there are some people in the world that still remember it. Um, And we did all sorts of things, like we supported charities and we'd have people come in to speak to us from political campaigns, all kinds of stuff. Um, uh, Wherever we had an event, I would make sure the walls were covered with black and white photos from different um, photographers that I was a fan of to promote their work and all kinds of extra satellite things that would go along with that. And during that time period, I then went to work for... Um, to William Morris was about to be bought out by Triad and I was told, look, you know, you're a woman and there's lots of people ahead of you. You wouldn't be on a path to be an agent. I don't even know if you want to be an agent anyway. Um, You know, maybe, maybe, and maybe I was advised by some agents that I knew there that were women that were like, you know, you're going to be static. And if anything, you might go down a few runs if when William Morris buys us. Right. I got the heads up. So I um, was offered a job making more money Which was always a reason I would move um, Working for Susan Smith And if you don't know who Susan Smith is Just Google it I will not speak ill of the dead But let's just say that the person before me um, Said that they needed to move their car On their first day of work and never came back So this was another one of those situations Where someone (laughs) said Can you work with difficult people? Exactly, right? And I was like, sure, like an idiot And it was when I was working there that I realized, okay, I want to do something on my own. I think I want to be my own boss. I think I like the entertainment industry. I don't think I'm going to go to law school. Um, uh, I think I'm gonna do something myself. Maybe I want to be an agent. Maybe I want my own agency. And uh, Marty Ehrlichman, who's been managing Barbara Streisand, I believe, for her entire career except for a little blip in the middle, um, was looking for someone to work with him on the first eight interactive games ever made anywhere for Sony for this company he created called Entergamement. Um, And so I was brought in interacting with Barbara Streisand. Oh my fucking god! Right? Oh my god! Oh my god! I'm. Enter- the phone and I'm speaking to Barbers. What? 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 <laughs> what? What? Oh my God! Right? Oh my God! Like oh my God! So I um actually we were given we were supposed to make day out of days for these 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 productions for these make your own games. Um, make your own music videos that we did within excess and all these bands. And some of the things didn't have a script um, that was written in a, in, you know, like make your own ending kind of way. Um, The script that we were getting was just like someone enters a room five different ways, you know, and that was it. Right. But you'd actually need to write a script for that. If you're going to make a day out of days and shoot something. So I wrote fake scripts to be funny just to fill in the five different ways that someone would enter a room and they used all my scripts. And (laughs) so that's another weird IMDb credit I have. Um, But you know, as an agent and as a manager, you don't get credits for what you do. So it was shortly after that I had told Marty when I went to work for him, I'm going to start my own company. And he's like, yeah, kid, yeah. And within about a year, year and a half, I started Acme Talent and Literary. And I ran that company for 10 years until we had 18 agents in LA and three in New York. William Morris did buy out Triad right then when we were starting. And so it was perfect timing. And a lot of their William Morris's B clients and and triad's B clients that were let go because of the merger would be anybody else's A clients. And that's how we started our client list and uh um, like I said We had 18 agents In LA Before we were done And three in New York So we had a musical Theater department We handled kids And adults For commercials Our kids department For commercials Was amazing Adults too We handled people For TV and film We put uh, Marissa Winoka In Hairspray We put Seth Myers On Saturday Night Live um, We we booked Persia White onto Girlfriends We, we had a really Good run Putting it, people In film and TV um, We put uh, Paul Franklin Dano In his first film After being on Broadway Because we would crossover clients, right? Um, and uh, we put him in LIE. I started going to Sundance in 1993, which was when he opened Acme. I went every year. I threw ridiculous late night parties every night of the festival. A lot of people do, but mine kind of got famous. So they started referring to me in the trades. I knew all the IndieWire guys as the queen of Sundance. So somehow I got that nickname, uh, mostly because I just know where everything is is but you know there's so much now to learn about what happens at <laughs> sundance it's grown into this huge massive ridiculous thing when i started going there were no cell phones when i started going it was a very long time ago people don't quite grasp what it was right we had pagers and answering machines and that's how you communicated with each other so knowing where all yeah. the parties were was like a special skill right david
0: <laughs> well you know i um Kevin Smith is a, is a favorite director of mine, and he's always talking about his cell of Clerks in Sundance in the early '90s. He's like, I don't know that I'd be able to do that today, you know, because it's a totally different market and it's a totally different way of doing business there. And
1: yeah, it's a mar. It's yeah, it was just a festival. Now it's a festival and an unofficial market for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, rem- I met Vin Diesel when he got there with Strays and became friends and started hanging out with his crowd back then. Mm. um, uh, Like really hanging out with his crowd. And then um, I introduced him, was the first person to go, you know, you really need to know Michelle Rodriguez. I met Michelle Rodriguez at the girl fight and took her to her first quote unquote Hollywood party, which was my after party at Sundance, right? <laughs> um, And uh, so, you know, you meet a lot of people at the beginning of their trajectory there and i'm just a huge fan of independent films and independent voices and the sundance ecosystem itself and the people that they that they foster and the stories and the filmmakers that get their start there well, and it, it's a it big seems part of to me To
0: me, like you you've managed to work within the system but you've got an independent uh kind of personal mentality to begin oh. with um, so, I think I can see why you would ad- admire the independent filmmakers the the folks who are you know grinding it out and making it happen yeah you know that as seems an, to be you you know yeah
1: as an agent, I set up elf. Okay, I developed that with my client And I set it up I set up Save the Last Dance Arguably the first interracial dance film um, That had a sequel And we we set up uh, With the brilliant and wise and wonderful Mickey Freiberg who came and joined me Who was at William Morrison Came to join me as an agent, as a literary agent To join my team at Acme Talent and Literary um, uh, We went out and got the rights together For the two guys that were taken out of the Rumble From the World Trade Center And we, we set up World Trade Center with Barry Evans, Deborah Hill, and Oliver Stone that Nicolas Cage starred in. So all the stuff that I actually set up during that time period was studio stuff, like
2: mm-hmm.
1: bidding war studio stuff. Um, and those were the ones that got made, the rest of them. My clients made six and seven figures, but due to regime change, they just didn't, never got made, right? So my experience there was, was setting up films only with studios, but at the same time, I definitely repped some indie films at Sundance after they were already made by someone else or because a client got into them. Right. Um, And then, you know, as I said, I later theatrically booked independent films into theaters um, just in the before time. So I've definitely ridden both rails, right? I've definitely ridden both rails. And I I think it, it's really about storytelling, David, right? At the end of the day, I love storytellers, and all the different ways they can tell stories, and all the different platforms and technologies that can tell them from goggle headsets where I represented Jane Goodall. Um Jane Goodall's featured in these virtual reality films called Wild Immersion that if you guys had ever get your hands on them, you should see them. And uh, they seat like 30 or 40 people at a time in a theater in the before times. And they all watch it on goggles together. And they do these incredible films in the wild mm-hmm. of uh, animals interacting with a camera with no cat crew around, which is incredible. So I don't care what the message is that someone wants to tell. I just kind of dig being part of the process to help them facilitate it being told.
0: That's awesome. That is totally awesome.
2: So, Lisa, go ahead. No, no, no. Well, so I. No, you. (laughs) No, 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 you. No, you. We're we're being so nice. (laughs) My thought is, so you were running the agency, but you were also Uh, producing at the same time. No, no. No. You cannot produce when you're an agent. So, what I was, I was setting up
0: rules, Whitney.
2: Yeah, that's, that's why I wanted to ask this
1: question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As a manager, you can produce. As an agent, you can't. So I set those up as an agent, which is why they're not credits. Uh-huh. I represented the writer. Um, you know, I, I referenced Mickey Freiberg. Mickey was known as the Jewish cowboy. He represented like The Grateful Dead and like Bill Bonanno from the real Godfather family that The Godfather's based on. Like, he had these really eclectic, amazing list of clients that he represented. Homer Hickam, all these amazing people. And he used to say. Sell it. Don't smell it. He was like, something comes your way. You like it, get it out. Let them let the, let the production companies develop it. Don't work on it in-house before you get it out. And, you know, there's that phrase like perfect is the enemy of the done or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. But I like developing and I think the doors open and then I think they close so i want things as perfect as they can be which is why i didn't go out with even though we were Acme Talent and literary i didn't go out with anything for the first year and a half I, there was one thing that came my way i negotiated the deal but i didn't go out with any scripts for the first year and a half even though literary was in the name of our agency and i was the lit department but once i did it was bidding war bidding war bidding war anymore because I knew what I had and I knew what I was developing and I snuck it to producers ahead of time and I got notes and we took the notes and we made sure it was as good as possible. So kind of acting like a producer, but I was an agent, right? So when I say I set them up, I set them up as an agent. Uh, David Madden did, you know, save the last dance, right? You know, other people, you know, Oliver Stone and Deborah Hill made, uh, you know, um, the World Trade, World, World Trade Center. So yeah, I was, I was just the
2: agent of record. But you were helping shape it in order to get it pitched, to get it through the door.
1: I helped shape it in order to have it be written the best it could possibly be written in order to get that script to be bought or optioned to be made into a project. Yeah.
2: Okay. Gotcha. So And how long did Acme um, stay in existence before you transitioned to the next level of managing and producing and things like that? So
1: I was a CEO for 10 years um, with my husband at the time. My husband stopped being my husband in about 2000 when he found someone lovely that looked a lot like me, but was 10 years younger. He asked her to marry him. Then he asked me for a divorce in that order. Oh, and then, gosh. yeah, it's okay. Everything happens for a reason. And we ran the company for another three years together, but it really was difficult yeah um because yeah. i literally looked exactly like her and there were now kids and the kids were coming in the office and they would see me through the glass conference room and be like mommy and i'm not mommy and that was not did not go over well with that with my partner and his family um so within and then and 911 happened and i lost a lot of people because we had a new york office and by that i was dating Um, the man who ran the uh, vice chair of the stock exchange of the American stock exchange office. So together we lost a lot of people during nine 11. And so we had, you know, some tragedy and it was difficult. And I kind of lost my, you know, you can tell my heart, right? Like my heart was in it, right? Mm -hmm. My heart was like sewn to the company and, and everything that we were doing. And my heart broke. And I decided I was going, if I was going to keep doing anything, that I was going to do something that I really made a difference. And I decided to get into politics. So I left the business in 2003. Meanwhile, Acme was still thriving at that point. We were 10 years along as a business and E did a show about us called fight for fame where five actors fight for, to become a client of the agency mm-hmm. every episode um, so like we were moving up, but ex-husband basically didn't do a great job of running the company and it crashed and burned after about five years. So Acme lasted about 15 years. Uh, he sold off pieces of it. I, um, lasted 10 years. And then from 2003 till and. Uh, 16, I was doing politics. I was trying to save the world. I started studying it like I was going to get a doctorate in it. Um, I went and lived in Holland for a couple of years. I didn't answer an email or a a phone call for two years while I studied. Um, I mean, except from family. Like, it was kind of crazy being on the treadmill of being an agent of a coastal agency to just going – you guys take the United States, I'm taking the rest of the world, right? And, uh, and then I got a phone call that I should come back to the States, and I did, and I took care of my father who got cancer at the time. He's fine, but, I mean, he's not fine, but the cancer came and went. Um, went through one round of chemo and we got over it. And then the UN reached out to me and uh, granted me the ability to go to a leadership conference um, that was about the lineal goals. And they asked me to attend because they considered me a leader amongst the space. Um, and I started doing politics and the rest is history. So I worked within the my.barackobama.com website, creating the can groups for every county and parish in the United States. Um, they say that that website was really instrumental in um, his winning in 2008. I cannot speak to that. I just worked my ass off. And then um, I was with him when he won in Chicago. You can, he he wouldn't be able to pick me out of a lineup. Don't, don't kid yourself. But, um, but you can hear me when he gives his, his speech, his acceptance speech in Chicago. You can hear me on any recording. Um, uh, He says, hello, Chicago. And the crowd goes, (sighs) and before he goes into his speech, like if anybody ever thought a kid from the, whatever. Um, In between, you hear one idiot all by herself yelling, Yes, we can! Yes, we did! Yes, we did! That was me. Um, (laughs) And so... Um, I was there sitting in the front with the Tuskegee airman uh, when he was inaugurated. One of my stepfathers was a Tuskegee airman. I was there at a couple of the balls that he danced at. I worked with lobbyists. I worked on policy. I tried to make the world a better place. I did everything I could. And then in November, 2016. Mm. Can't quite put my finger on what happened. November, 2016. Mm. <laughs> But I remember maybe I should just drop the word politics and back away slowly. Maybe it's some sort of French word. I don't even understand. I The am world not took a hard
0: right turn. Do- Whoa,
1: right? <laughs> you can say that again, right? Um, and so I exited stage left. And I decided to come back in the industry, the thing that made me my most money at this point in my life. My father had been diagnosed with Parkinson's in about 1990, and it had developed, and developed, and developed, and developed. So by 2017 in January, my dad was uh, quadriplegic, and he still could talk then. And um, so I turned our dining room. uh, I had moved us up to Oregon where there's fewer pesticides, which is a thing that hurts people who have Parkinson's. It, it makes right. it affects their ability. And I turned the dining room into a big office. Um, my dad, uh, we took the huge glass doors. This house has ceilings that are ridiculous. So he has these huge glass doors on his shower and I took them off and I turned them into desks and I created an office off of his ensuite So he could hear me work all the time. You know, I was there. He's still here with us now. I mean, oh. not right here, but in my home. Yeah. And both my parents are eighty three, and you know I'm an advocate for him. My father was a rocket scientist his entire career, so my production company is Rocket Surgeon Productions. I gathered up my old clients that I had sold a bunch of stuff for. Edward Savio, my one of my oldest friends, one of the smartest people I know, who I met when he was working at Triad, and he had worked at ICM, so he knows the agency side, and he's an author, uh, published author, and a a sold screenwriter, an option screenwriter, and 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 been paid a lot of money and six figures and then seven figures to do it. So we decided to start our company together. We, I took a couple of his old novellas, put them together, um, made them into one book, Alexander X, which uh, became a best-selling award-winning uh, audiobook. It was the beginning of the Battle for Forever series. Your listeners should go to battleforforever.com they should sign up for free it'll give them a standalone novella in the BFF universe so if they love it then they can get the audiobooks later but it'll drop them into what is going to be a significant franchise that I'm super amazingly excited about um, the second book also did really well they've got great ratings on audible I think like whatever 4.7 and 4.5 or something like you know people love them great I mean we 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 will 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 we, we'll, we'll, we'll we is not inexpensive mm-hmm. uh, he doesn't like a lot of stuff it's difficult to get him but we got him so that's a huge coup um, right after ready Player when the film dropped or right around then is when we dropped our first two audiobooks in June and July of 2019 um, we've we're coming up on 400,000 in sales for an audiobook which is not bad um, and uh, uh, for two, the two audiobooks and so we're we're you know that's a franchise that's growing. And um, and I go back and forth between L.A. and New York on a regular basis representing my literary clients, developing content and trying to make the world a better place.
2: And didn't that gentleman just uh, release another book recently? Edward Savio. So Edward Savio and Edward
1: Roulette are two different clients. Edward Savio released the first two books. And like I said, you could get that novella to drop into the Battle for Forever world at that website, battleforforever.com. But he's he also... what, what you can get there is the first chapter read by the author for free of the third book. And I've read 13 chapters of the third book and the first two are great. They're really, 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 really good. This blows them out of the water. Like I'm so excited about it. I'm so excited about it. I'm so excited about it. It's, it's everything that I would want from a series. And uh, so that's Edward Savio's books. But Edward Roulette, I think is what you might be thinking of. Edward Roulette is another client, um, we can call him Ed for safety's sake. And Ed is a multi uh, Aurora winning, Aurora award winning author who's represented by the great and powerful Ethan Ellenberg, who also represents, um, uh, I, I think I want to say Ernest Klein, but I get them all mixed up. So I I could be saying the wrong person that he represents. I'll think of it in a minute. Who he represents. Who wrote Ready Player One? When I when I get Ernest that Klein. Okay, so I think he represents yeah. Ernest Cline. Or or who wrote Red Shirts? It's Red Shirts. Um, if you get that, then that's who he represents. Anyway. Ed is in great company with this agent, right? He's absolutely brilliant. And um, and so uh, he actually interviewed on a podcast like this, my Edward Savio. Uh, as a result, he's like, so you manage writers? What's that about? And he sent me his books and w- one of his many sets of, of of series that he has in the um, sci fi and fantasy world are the is the world shaper series and I now represent that for film and TV and we're in development on that and I think what you're referring to is um, most of the things that that Edward Willette has done um, have been pre- published by like big um, very very big uh, publishers but twice twice he has uh, done a Kickstarter with all the authors that he's interviewed on his podcast that are, you know, international best-selling award-winning authors and he's done these anthologies of sci-fi and fantasy books and the first one was called Shaper of Worlds 1 and I think this is Shaper of Worlds 2 and um and so Scalzi John Scalzi, yeah, is John who Scalzi. Is a, yeah. I, I was no.
0: holding back I was waiting for you to finish yeah.
1: it was Scalzi not um not Ernie Klein Scalzi so who like I you know I want to be John Scalzi when I grow up so um like for sure I want to be John Scalzi when I grow up like absolutely 100 percent. so <clears throat> these particular set of books that I'm developing are really amazing and I you know our biggest problem is is it a three set film series or is it a TV series? And with these IPs, sometimes you have to like develop both and see which one takes first, whoever like bites first is where you actually go. I know that sounds maybe a little counterintuitive, but sometimes it's the way it is. You know, Mm -hmm. Twilight could have been a streaming series, right? Realistically, right? If you look back at it now, but at the time, it made really, really good sense to make three features. So we're just trying to figure out what to do with that. But I think you might be referring to his second Kickstarter, which uh, I believe just finished, but we went over, we made more than what he wanted to make for the authors. And one of the short stories in there is a story by Edward Savio, just to make it more confusing. <laughs> um, uh, so because I know that short story, I know that the second anthology is going to be as good as the first. Um, but I think that might be what you're referring to, Whitney. I don't yes, know. Yeah,
2: that's, that's what you had sent me. It was uh, about the, the world shapers. So yeah, there you go. Wanted to ask about that. So Lisa, OK, so one thing that I'm noticing about your story, like almost everything that you've tried, you just you you went for it. You just asked the right people and then doors just opened, which is I mean, that's a testament to the fact that, you know, sometimes you just have to freaking go for it and ask. But have you ever like run into um any challenges, anything that it was like, oh my oh, this God, yeah. Derailed the entirety of my trajectory, maybe for yeah. good or for bad. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you overcame challenges in your journey?
1: Well, you know, I spoke a little bit about the challenge of leaving my child, Acme Talent and Literary, right?
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, that was a challenge to want to even be back in the entertainment industry. I'd really did a brain dump and never thought I'd be back. Um, there are tons of projects that Edward Savio has set up with Sony and Disney that, you know, it was optioned, right? Um, And an option means that they'll work with you for a significant period of time. They'll give you money up front, in my case, for the clients, right? And they'll pay you for rewrites and they'll pay you for polishes. And then maybe they'll make it or they won't. And then you'll get the rest of the money in the deal at the beginning of principal photography, right? That's generally how it's done. And uh, nothing Edward set up with a studio. In one year, six figures, six figures, six figures, seven figures. All in one year, four deals. None of them got made. (laughs) and you know um, one of the things that happens when you work with places like Disney is you might see your idea come out a different way so we sold we set up uh, a Swiss family Rubenstein which he had written with Bette Midler in mind and Bette Midler's production company took it up when they were at Disney and optioned it so he got six figures for that didn't get made there but within a relatively short period of time on ABC came Beverly Hills Robinson Mm -hmm. what are you going to do? Right? Fight Disney. Right? So that has happened. Okay? Um, uh, We set up Edwards. The first book that I ever read of Edward Savio, my partners, was Idiots in the Machine, which is a kind of brilliant dark comedy uh, mainstream uh, novel. Idiots in the Machine. Really great book. Amazing book. And it was the first thing that I ever read in my life that made me say that while I was working at Triad, like, maybe I do want to be an agent. I would love to represent something like this. And he was just working at Triad as like the ultimate, like fill in assistant. He was what they call the 90 day wonder. He would come in and if someone needed, uh, if someone was looking for uh, an assistant because they, maybe they lost their, their older assistant who'd been with them forever, or they've shown, they've thrown a shoe at assistant number four and no one will work on their desk. Um, he would come in. He would work on the desk, clean it up for ninety days, interview a bunch of people, get them trained up, and then get out of the way. So he knew the agency from that side. He was at ICM when some major contracts came through his fingers, when they bought other agencies, when other agencies, when a bunch of agents left and formed their own agency, that kind of thing. So he knew the power of no, and he knew all of that. But he was an author and a screenwriter primarily, and so. When I became, when I got to Acme Town Literary, after we'd we'd set up two specs of his, Swifts uh, Swift Melny Rubenstein, the master, and then the third one was a pitch which we set up to with Sony um, called Book'em, which was about a guy who came from a long line of cops and detectives. This was before Paul Bart Mall, Carp- Mall Cop. It was mm-hmm. before Night in the Museum. Okay, neither one of those things had, was a twinkle in anybody's eye. And our story was like, this guy's just kind of incompetent. He's not very good at any of the police tests or anything. And so his brother in the, in the system, um, uh, in the police officer's ecosystem gets him the only job he can get him working for the Boston library system as a book detective tracking down deadbeat book borrowers. <laughs> and it was called Bookham, And he ends up in the process, obviously solving a real live kidnapping case right um really really brilliant we had set that up and because we they'd already paid edward six figures for a pitch with sony when we went out with that manuscript idiots in the machine an unpublished manuscript at that point uh wendy Feinerman and her husband at the time mark who ran the studio um bid against themselves for hours i think their original offer was 70 grand and it went up they they ended up at 1.2 million is what it's what it was done for. Did any of those things get made that year? Not, uh, one. Did we make all the upfront money? Was he very busy doing rewrites on everything? Sure. You know, that was a part of the deal. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, so that was great, but they didn't always get made. So I think the challenge is once your project gets into the hands of a system that you are no longer in charge of, like I had this the screenwriter who wrote, um, he wrote uh uh town and country this spec called town and country and it went around and everybody really liked it it was really kind of friggin brilliant you know a lot of times when you read screenplays there's things that are there for the screen and there's things that are there for the reader Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, you don't want to overdo it in your scene descriptions. But when you're trying to get into the hands of producers or you want to get past the gatekeepers of the readers that read things for all these agencies and these producers and development executives, sometimes you got to put really interesting things in the scene
0: descriptions. See, now that's Um, really interesting because we're told constantly to avoid that in our screenwriting. But I've always felt that way like at least while i'm trying to sell it some of that scene description needs to be in there like right so i felt that absolutely for a long time but i'm always told not to do that
1: yeah exactly by people who are i can't use the word on (laughs) okay but your gut is correct and they're right right the Mm -hmm. great thing about clubhouse where we all met is that you could triangulate information and solutions and everybody can be right. Right. Which is really just amazing. Um, So yeah, you don't do like, like the camera pan, you know, and you don't, you don't give, you you don't give too much information that would really be part of like a shooting script, but I'm probably going to butcher this, but it was something like um, we see a car from above tooling down the highway, making his way out to Hamptons through Long Island, Wearing, uh, lighting up a cigarette, wearing a suit that had once walked Wall Street, but had long since forgotten the address. I'm butchering it. I'm butchering it, but it's intriguing. You get that it it was, this was about, this is actually about the time when the stock market crashed, right? Um, the, the, you know, the original stock market crash back in the, you know, to you know, 20s, 30s, and it's supposed to be the backstory of the stock market crashing and it being uh, something that was calculated and manipulated.
0: Right. But and that so piece of writing not only paints a picture, but taps into an emotional vein.
1: Everything. Everything. Is any of that on screen? Maybe, maybe not. But it definitely spoke to the people reading the script. You right. get that this guy's like wearing a rumpled suit; like he looked like he was important. He's not anymore. He's headed out to the Hamptons. If you ever spend any time in New York, that's kind of an escape moment, right? You know, um, you know, he's actually being invited to this dinner with all these big wigs, and he doesn't know why. So, um, so that, so that, um, that guy. We went out with a script. No one bought it or optioned it, but they did want to know him. And he went out to a million meetings. He was super fascinating, that guy. And uh and what happened was he wanted to develop a screenplay based on a Philip K. Dick short story. Mm-hmm. Oh. And yeah. And Philip K. Dick is, you know, do androids dream of electric sheep and mm-hmm. uh, yeah. you know, right? Like some of the most classic films Sci-fi of all time. God.
0: Yeah.
1: Right? So if I God became, you know, Blade Runner and became uh what's a Schwarzenegger? uh Mars? Um
0: Total Recall. Total
1: Recall, recall, thank you. Happens on Mars. Total Recall, right? So, like, you know, these are developed from those short stories. So, it was no joke. And we contacted them and found that they wanted, like, 100K, uh, the estate for this short story. I don't have hundred K I'm an agent, you know, I, I didn't know what to do, but Sony was really interested in. Him. So we went to Sony and we're like, look, Sony, this is answering your question about overcoming. We went to Sony. and We're like, look, you liked him as a screenwriter. He wants to develop this. Here's the short story. It would cost hundred grand. They're like, no problem. We'll pay the hundred grand and we'll hire him to write the screenplay. <laughs> that means they now owned the rights to that short story. Right. And when it didn't move forward, my screenwriter had nothing. And it meant that he was writing the screenplay as essentially a work for hire for the studio. Right. So he didn't own that screenplay, which was called Time Squared, afterwards. And so when it was done, you got nothing. And so I think in terms of uh, obstacles to overcome knowing that when you put yourself in the hands of one of these giants, it's both a blessing and a curse, right? These things, if they don't happen, you're stuck. It may go into turnaround. It may not go into turnaround. If it goes into turnaround, you've got to find someone else who wants to replace all the money that's already been spent at a studio level in order to even play before they go from there. Right. So I think those are some of the biggest obstacles to overcome. And then coming back into the entertainment industry, um, getting everybody to think that to know that I was alive because, um, there are a lot of people that followed me and as a, in the news industry, as a journalist in politics, and there are people who got their news only from me. I run an activist Democrats group in Facebook with a couple hundred thousand people in a group called news that, that used to have like 50,000 members. And then it went down to 30,000 members. And now it's down to 17,000 members, partly because of the whole like fake news, you know, like whatever, partly because it was a bunch of trolls in there that got removed. Um, um, partly because I went to clubhouse and kind of <laughs> stopped doing it because I got throttled on Facebook, which is a whole other interesting political story. Um, but I started getting throttled right around just before the um, uh, the 2020 election right. for 30 days for no reason I couldn't find anything in my inbox and then I was throttled for another 30 days around the, the night before the insurrection so just kind of odd stuff but a lot of people got their news for me and but they but entertainment industry, Everyone I knew is either dead or now the head of something. Like that's how time passed, right? In those 13 years. Like, so for me, the struggle was how do I get everybody to know that I'm back and playing in a world where the streamers are now the kings, right? Yeah. And when I left the industry, 60 people would send a messenger on a Tuesday or a Wednesday to pick up a physical script for me. Right? And Craig Perry would come and sit on my couch the night before that happened so that he could read the script before anybody else got it. Right. And now you send emails and you may or may not get a response. I mean, it's just a whole different universe, right? And actors, when I left the business, actors' p- pictures were submitted as pictures and resumes. And you had a room full of pictures and resumes. Now, it's all actors' access. And it's online. And it's, you know, in the world changed. The world changed significantly in the time that I was gone. So, those are the challenges for me. But then I got on Clubhouse and everyone was like, oh, Lisa's back. So, um <laughs> Uh, But the truth is, you know, Edward and I talk about it all the time, my partner. You know, if all we did was work on his books one by one and make them into audiobooks, I'm making money every month. I'm a happy person. We're, mm-hmm. we're, we're creating content. We're speaking to an audience. You know, the fact that we're going to do audio plays of some of screenplays for Audible, the fact that I have all these other um, projects that are now, um, you know, set up in development with different big, you know, showrunners and, and co-executive producers and people that can th- get things done with their production companies around town is just gravy right? Um, You know, I'm just grateful that I can be working on content that I'm excited about, that I get to read good, great stuff every day. Um, There's this incredible company called Shadow Alley Press. They're a publishing firm that has a lot of titles and they've approached me about managing their entire library and we're having discussions. So we'll see if that really happens. Maybe I could be... Uh, vince artist when i grow up you know that would be nice too i'd be okay with that um so in the next couple of days before we talk next i have to listen to two audiobooks that's a lot of time consumption right there just so i can start to get familiar with their library um of their amazing work and the author that runs that company um at shadow alley press which is all like sci-fi and fantasy t- titles it's not all i do but you know if i have a choice my dogs are named after Star Trek characters. You know what I mean? Like I'm kind of a geek, as I mentioned, the aforementioned Klingons at Paramount. Right. Uh, I've definitely dropped some hints that I like Star Trek. Um, (laughs) So, uh, you know, if I have a choice, I think that's the genre that I love. But I have definitely worked on everything.
0: That's amazing.
2: Lisa, I so love that within the story, like You often say when I grow up, and I think that really that speaks to the fact that you still are viewing this entire journey with a child's eye where it's like, you know what? Nothing's impossible. And I'm just going to get out there and do it. And I can change my career midstream or go back. And like, Mm. that's so exciting how it's hard, though, sweetie. It's hard. It's no
1: joke. Like, it's no joke. Like, yeah, you're right. I kick doors open for a living. But what is standing there once the door is kicked open is the biggest part of the journey. And and uh, Ed- Edward Savvy, my partner, calls me an unguided missile because if he says he wants <laughs> something, I like get it in a few minutes. Like, be very careful what you ask me for because I ha- I know five people who can get you that right. Um, but if you open that door and the person isn't ready, not only does the door close, but people are like done with them. They're mm-hmm. literally done with them. I had someone come to me with a really great idea and I started working with them and they called me Linda by accident four times and the door closed. I don't like being called Linda. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it wasn't the only reason, but I'm just saying doors open and doors close and you have to really, really, really be ready um, when they open to be the best, best that you can be like you said David you know what I mean like you do that you, you know you do what I call the getting readies right you know and a lot of people will tell you the way you're getting ready might be wrong um, you know but you, you really in order to be successful I think you have to trust your gut on mm-hmm. what really feels organic to how you're telling your story and it doesn't matter how many times people say no Whitney you only need one right yes
2: yeah <laughs> absolutely
0: that's a good way to look at it yeah you know i've had a lot of actors on on clubhouse recently you know ask me they're like i'm not getting a lot of auditions and and you know the lull times i don't know what to do with myself during the lull times you know do i need to study more do i need to do more self-tapes and whatever and i keep telling all of them the same thing i'm like go live your life during the lull time remember what it's like to be a human being because ultimately that's important you know don't don't be afraid to be a person.
1: <laughs> well, here's my, here's my thing. Cause I represented thousands of actors over the years, right? Like literally. So here's what I would say to that. First of all, living your life and getting hurt informs a lot of performances as an actor.
0: So exactly what I said okay. to them. <laughs> yeah,
1: but I don't understand actors having downtime. I don't even understand what those words mean because if you're not, I mean, any actor who says, should I be studying? I don't, I don't understand who they are. Like you should, it's all, it's A, B, S, always be studying. It would be like someone who's a musician going, do you think I should practice my, my playing? Do you think I should, (laughs) do you think I should go on a piano every once in a while? Do you think I should pick up a guitar? Yes, you moron, of course. Like if you're an actor and you're not studying now, here's what I say about that. If you've been studying with the same person for over a year, and there may be some acting coaches out there who will be very upset with me saying this, but I've always said it. If you're studying with the same person for over a year and you've hit like that comfortable place, I have one actor explain to me, you know, at first you're the new person in the class. And then the next thing you know, they're pairing you up with new people, right? Like to, like to help them along as you as you grow within a, a, a class space, within a classroom space. Right. Um, but if you're not always studying, you're not working out your instrument, right? right? And if you're with the same person for over a year, you came in at this level. I'm making a hand gesture. You can't see. You came in at this level, right? And then after a year, you grew to this level, but acting coaches are humans. They've now made you better, right? That they're not necessarily, you kind of plateau. And so I always recommend going with somebody else for a while because then you come in at that higher level, but to them, it's your beginning spot right. and they have no place to go but up from there. So you have a place to learn and grow and you don't get complacent. You could always go back to that original coach. You could always study with them specifically for an audition. But I, I, I think that especially the most amazing thing, I mean, some amazing things have happened because of COVID. Yeah. Horrible, 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 horrible things. Loss and fear and... And, and we lost about a third of our film festivals this last year because either people died or they lost their venues or just the fear itself has stifled people. And, and we've had to re, you know, our business specifically has had to relearn how to do what we do safely. And we're still in that process. Insurance mm-hmm. doesn't know what to do about us. Getting people from country to country to move around for a production is really difficult. So, you know, we, there's, there's a lot of obstacles we need to overcome to stay, you know, in the entertainment business but if you are an actor and you're not constantly studying and taking advantage of the fact that you can reach out and study with people you could never study with before right
0: because it's virtual
2: (laughs) exactly then what the hell are you doing yeah you should there's there's something to be said of like studying different pedagogies of acting as well because not everything requires a hammer you know like uh Mm -hmm. yep you know maybe it's it's Meisner at one point and maybe it's uh, Meyerhold technique at another point depending and, on or maybe you're doing your the method
1: right or yeah. maybe You know, or you're taking, you know, if it wasn't for COVID, and even if it is because you can do things virtually, are you taking movement classes? Are you taking voice classes? Are you building your wardrobe of things you would want to wear for auditions? Are you physically taking care of yourself? I mean, people have things to say about Scientology, but I will say that the Beverly Hills Playhouse has come up with some of the best actors uh, I've ever represented. And one of their theories is, you know, clean your car, clean your mind, basically something like that. And so the people that they get that come through there are on their game. Their shit is together. They, you know, they, they are physically working on themselves. They've got themselves in either the best shape possible or they've cultivated the, the character part of them so that they've got it on point. They're on fleek. They have the best possible photos. You're always doing new shoots. You know, there's so much you could be doing. You could be learning other dialects. You could be learning to sing. You could be learning a skill that you could use on a set. You could be learning, um, uh, uh, martial arts. You could be, that's what
0: I think I meant by you, you got to remember to be a person. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta live because, you know what I've seen with a lot of people during COVID is they kind of got stuck on Zoom all day, uh. and they're 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 rehearsing with people on Zoom or they're yeah. they're taking classes with people on Zoom or they're just stuck in a room, and they're forgetting that they've got to go out and do other things like yoga and right hiking and camping and you know exploring the world and remembering what the world is like. You know, I, <laughs> I have this fear that we're gonna have a a generation of actors that only know how to act in a in a bedroom, you know.
1: Yeah. Yeah, with a green screen behind them.
0: Yeah, um, you know.
1: Yeah, no you're so right, David. And you know, one of the things I studied to bring it back to the the Shakespeare professor that I had in college, one of the themes that ran through everything was something called the green world theme, which is also um something that uh Robert Redford really believes in when he created Sundance and the Sundance Institute. Which was basically, if you look at the Shakespeare stories that are not the historical pieces, they all have this theme of something isn't working out well. There's some sort of conflict. You go into the woods or you get caught up in nature somehow and you re- figure it all out and everything gets, goes to, goes to hell and then, and then gets re- reassigned. And then you come back to the city and everything is all's well that ends well, right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, Robert Redford did the same thing. He said, if I can get maybe actors or people who've worked in one field, uh, one area of the business out into the woods, out into nature, I bet they can learn to tell stories and you've got all these actors and you know some people they're just actors and I don't mean that in a negative way but that's who they are and but now they have this opportunity to create content like never before they can not only reach out to other content creators easier than ever in the history of the entertainment industry but they can also pick up a phone and make an iPhone film like Tangerine that ends up at Sundance right they can they they have access to making creating content um, and, and, and platforms that can show their content that reach audiences that never existed before so um if you you know if you it, what robert believed was that if you get like an actor to come out there they could maybe direct their first film they could come up with ideas because they're in the woods like so when you casually say like go camping or go for a walk like it actually there's been a you know a long-standing belief within some of the giants of our industry over the millennia that um, exposing yourself to nature is the most amazing reset. In fact, um, when you're Jewish and you believe in the Kabbalah or the Kabbalah, however you say it, um, one of the things you're supposed to do is on Saturdays when you're supposed to unplug, right. Or, 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 um, or I guess Sundays for the Christians or Saturdays for the seventh day Adventist mm-hmm. um, that you are supposed to unplug and go for a walk with your family in nature. It is it is something that as humans, we're supposed to do. There's so many different teachings that teach you. You're supposed to do that because there's some kind of reset that happens that um, we don't even understand on a quantum level.
0: Yeah.
2: It's akin to medica- med- meditation. You know? You're know, you like mm-hmm. actually listening to, you're in connecting back to what's within instead of all this shit that's without <laughs>
1: Right. And, you know, we're no. three parts. There's three parts to us when you meditate, right? There's you, there's your brain, and there's your body, and you're three different parts. And you can tell your brain what to do, and you can tell your body what to do. And you can march out illness, certain illness in your body by doing that. And you can I'm, – I'm a firm believer in, in – in western medicine don't get me wrong i'm just saying there's lots of people who've been healed from certain things because they know that they can tell their body what to do they know they can control pain messages hitting their brain you know you know mm. they know that um that uh you know when you go to sleep at night if you find that you are sending yourself a lot of negative messages this is an overcoming story as well right so Let's say you find that out loud or whatever, you are constantly saying, that's not something I can do, or I keep getting robbed, or some list of negative phrases that are really true for you, right? I can't get past a a callback, right? I can't, whatever. It's always, it's a negative phrase that's true for you. If you can make a list of those negative phrases and create a list of the opposite of that, so instead of I'm always getting robbed by, pe- by bad people, it's I'm surrounded by kind, generous, honest, and loving people. I'm surrounded by kind, generous, honest, and loving people. And you create that as a mantra. And you repeat that over and over before you go to sleep. You are programming, you are programming your brain. And then you're setting your brain so that tomorrow, the day after that, the day after that, they're going to look for all of those good things in your life and steer you away from the bad ones because you programmed it to do that. And a lot of people that hit walls and, you know, it's a numbers game. If you get called back all the time, it's just a matter of time. But when you're trying to make it from I'm almost there to I'm there or to success, but the biggest thing you can do is check yourself are you constantly sending yourself negative mantra messages and programming yourself to believe that that is your existence on this earth and in this universe? Or are you taking a moment, choosing the opposite of those statements carefully? And repeating those to yourself over and over and over, especially before you go to sleep, because it will put you to sleep, but your brain will keep playing it to yourself. You can record it over and over in a loop and play it to yourself over and over. Um, You know, the our bodies are so Pavlovian. Like when you meditate and you listen to the sound of, of water running, for instance, actual water running gives off negative ions, which put, make, puts you in a really positive a frame of mind it's just the way it is but when we listen to running water even though we're not near the rushing water it has the same effect
0: so physical response to the stimuli
2: exactly
1: so give yourself the right stimuli that can help you have the physical response you need to have to
0: grow and overcome obstacles yeah
2: i love that that's very nice lisa anytime baby
0: beautiful Uh, Lisa thank you so much for giving us the time and and telling us your story like I I, I think you're just an incredible woman and and certainly an inspiration for a lot of people and uh, I can't wait to get this episode out and have people hear it
2: (laughs) right it's so positive and like everybody's gonna be like yes gonna go conquer the world now that's that's the vibe you give off Lisa it's like wow she can do it I can do it let's all go conquer the world
1: Yeah. You know, I think the only thing I would leave you with is everybody has trials and tribulations you can't see on the surface. Yeah. So try to be kind when someone does something out of character and it doesn't make sense and it's hurtful. Just maybe give them a little space because we've all been through it in 2020. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And if we if we all help each other just a little bit, I think a rising tide will lift all boats.
0: That has been my mantra since January 1 this year. Be kind.
2: Well, that's, I think that's a lovely sentiment to leave off on. Thank you guys so much for being here and having this chat. And thank you, listeners, for listening. And uh, we'll see you next time, guys. Hello
0: there, citizens. I am the terror that flaps in the night. I am the floaty that will not flash no matter how many times you try in the toilet bowl of crime. I am Darkwing Duck, telling you, please, talk hard and enjoy the mindgasm. <laughs> Whatever the heck that means. After all, you are watching Intellectual Podcast with your ears.
1: I love being intellectual.